Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to The Daily Break. I'm Andrew Tallman. Here's what's happening today at Newsweek. California regulators have made a landmark move to phase out the sale of new gasoline-powered vehicles by 2035, which is expected to ripple well beyond California's borders, and nearly a third of all of the states are thinking about or poised to adopt similar requirements. The California Air Resources Board voted Thursday to adopt the sweeping plan to shift the fuel source for the nation's largest auto market. And there is a carve-out in the Federal Clean Air Act that allows California to enact increasingly aggressive measures to cut carbon emissions from transportation other states similarly have the option of adopting. And as you would suspect, about a dozen mostly Democrat-led states have already signaled that they'll follow California's lead. New York's Governor Hochul last year signed a bill setting a goal of phasing out gas-powered vehicles by 2035. Jay Inslee in Washington did the same thing for 2030. Most of the states in the Upper Northeast, plus Maryland, Delaware, Colorado, Minnesota, New Mexico, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Virginia have all indicated that they might also follow suit. Now, this is not a first move. There was actually a group of states back in 2013 that signed on a plan to transition to electric vehicles, which was, of course, long before the current available technology. But, of course, a lot of this will depend on how the economy does. It depends on making the technology affordable. It's certainly going to depend on having the necessary infrastructure to charge the vehicles easily and expanding range for such vehicles. One of the primary reasons that people tend to avoid an EV these days versus a gas engine. But as we have seen so much of this technology change and improve over the years, one would assume most of that will improve in fairly short order. And just as major markets for textbooks like in Florida, Texas, and California can shape the entire marketplace for text production, if a big state like California and several other states follow suit, basically demanding that they're going to have EVs and closing off their population from being able to purchase gasoline engines, manufacturers will certainly take note of that and funnel R&D money into those endeavors. Staying now in California for our next story, a big success. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says that they are getting ready to release more California condors back into the wild in the northern portion of the state, a region where until recently the majestic birds had been missing for more than 100 years. The Northern California Condor Restoration Program, NCCRP, or NETCRAP for short, they probably don't say it that way, but I think it's funny, is going to release four birds between mid-September and mid-October in the region of the Redwood National and State Parks. The board is comprised of biologists and technicians from the Yurok tribe that have been really active in bringing about this restoration effort, especially in the northern portion of the state, and they recently released a group of four California condors in the area between May and July of this year. This was the northernmost California condor release to date, and it meant that the birds were finally flying free in a part of their range where they had been absent since 1892. Now, in case you've never seen one, and obviously given their endangered status, you may never have, the California condor is the largest land bird in North America, a wingspan of almost 10 feet and weighing up to 25 pounds. And they used to roam all over a huge range from California to Florida and western Canada to Mexico, but... 
Somewhere around maybe 10,000 years ago, the bird's range reduced dramatically as large mammal species that it fed on went extinct, so supply chain issues. And then in the mid-20th century, mankind came along and was really creating problems through lead poisoning and shooting, and they were actually classified in 1967 as endangered. By the time 1982 rolled around, there were only 22 known living California condors in the wild. So over the next five years, they moved them all into captivity and began a breeding program. Over the next 10 years, as they were breeding them, Fish and Wildlife began reintroducing the captive-bred condors back into the wild, and we now have a total worldwide population around 500, more than half of those flying outside of captivity. Now, previously, they had only been releasing condors in central and southern California, Arizona, and in some parts of northern Mexico. But in 2022, four birds were released in the north, and then the four more are coming this fall, which will bring the total northern California population to eight. And the Yurok tribe, which has been the driving factor of this northern restoration effort since 2008, says that the ones that they've released in the wild are flourishing in the Redwood region, exhibiting healthy behaviors like feeding, soaring, and finding safe roosts. That's some pretty cool news. So let's say you buy a historical house, and somehow in the process, you discover that there's a secret area inside that house, and you go exploring and find some very, very old things. What would be a really cool old thing to find? You know, old art an old watch, perhaps some kind of a historical document or buttons from the uniforms worn by soldiers during the American Revolution. You know, any of these things are kind of interesting. What if you found evidence of old beer brewing? And what if you found what you think was the very first evidence of beer brewing? Well, that's basically what they've discovered in Germany. A region in the Salzland district has had an excavation site going on for several years now, and it's actually set to wrap up this month. The site is called Polmelt. It's called the German Stonehenge, and it's a 4,000-year-old ring sanctuary, reportedly the first Central European monument complex that has primarily sacred importance. And if you look at it, yeah, it's a giant ringed structure with arches and monoliths and all kinds of things that indicate it was a thriving center of activity 4,000 years ago. They've acquired more than 10,000 artifacts from the site over the last five years, but now they got one that caught my attention. The remains of a special drying oven that still contains grain residue from which malt was possibly obtained for an early form of beer production. Now, the lead researcher says that to be absolutely sure, they're going to have to wait for the archaeobotanical analysis. But since they've already found barley and malt elsewhere on the site, they're pretty confident that the inhabitants who used the ring were descended from eastern barbarians and were mastering the art of ale production 2,400 years before Christ. In fact, they're hoping they might find an intact container that could potentially be the very first beer mug. Of course, if it's etched with Hofbrauhaus markings, we'll have our questions. And finally, the sort of story for which I feel the need to apologize in advance, and I'll tell you why. Because out there in the world are people who like to metal detect. And out there in the world are people who are married to people who like to metal detect. <laughs> a lot of times, the passion of the metal detector is not shared by the spouse. And this is the kind of story that feeds the frenzy. Staying in Germany again, last November, a man was in his garden, gardening. Yeah, I know it wasn't metal detecting, but you get it's the same sentiment. And he came across a plastic bag, kind of weathered, located underneath his hedge. When he opened it up, rings and jewelry and watches and a giant pile of euros, about $100,000 worth of euros. And the jewelry was wide-ranging. I mean, there was everything here from 
men's diamond rings to ladies' emeralds and sapphire rings. There's a panther brooch. There's a cross from a necklace. There's an earring that I can only describe as moderately pornographic. And so what the man did, as is appropriate, he turned it over to the authorities. And for the last several months, the authorities, with a lot of publicity, have been looking for the owner or owners of what might well be loot, and they just have had absolutely no success. At first, they thought it might have been connected to a burglary at Hanau Barracks back in the 1980s, but the Euros had dates on them that were more recent than that, and the fact that they were, you know, Euros, and that didn't exist in the 1980s. So they knew that wasn't true. And basically, after a bunch of efforts to find the owners, they came up with nothing. So under German law, if after six months you can't find the owner of something that you discover, guess what? You get to keep it. So an honest citizen has just come into possession of about $100,000 worth of cash and somewhere around $20,000 worth of random jewelry and one very interesting earring. That's it for the Daily Break. Be sure to head over to Newsweek.com for these stories and more, including our growing podcast lineup. Consider subscribing to this podcast and our digital and print editions of Newsweek if you haven't already. Hit the five-star review before you go, and I'll tell the condors not to look at you that way. I'm Andrew Tallman. Thanks for listening to The Daily Break, brought to you by Newsweek.